In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Please be seated. Today is the second Sunday of Advent. Last Sunday, you'll remember, we talked about the uh, armor of light that we're called to put on, the the light of Christ, His righteousness, and that we put on that armor to fight as the church militant uh, in this world uh, that is given over to sin and death. Uh, We're called to put on uh, Christ's righteousness. In keeping with that military theme of us dwelling in a place that, uh, that we in some ways don't belong in this world of sin and death, we have to, as soldiers, have hope. Uh, all soldiers have to have hope of victory. They have to have hope that there is a, a victory to come, that they can win this battle. And so we are called to have hope uh, to live in this world as the church militant. And this is the theme of all of the scriptures this morning. And not only that we have to have hope, but that God has given it to us. And once he's given it to us, we have to nurture it and protect it in ourselves and in others. So Isaiah talks about this hope and he proclaims the hope that was once given to the nation of Israel. He reminds them of the hope that is to come in the Messiah. He reminds them that this hope is going to come from the stump of Jesse. And so when we hear about Jesse, uh, we need to be thinking about this history of salvation that has come to Israel. And maybe to to remind us of that history, it's time for us to again uh, take that I-15 tour of salvation history, you know, that 80 mile per hour tour uh, very quickly. Uh, through salvation history. So you remember uh, Adam and Eve in the garden and they fall into sin. They have a son after Cain and Abel, Seth. The descendants of Seth uh, come forth and there is more wickedness upon the earth until one of Seth's descendants, Noah. Noah is the only righteous one. Uh, He and his sons are saved along with their wives in the ark. The Lord uh, washes away in the waters of baptism the sins of the world. And he preserves Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, his sons, along with their wives. Shem is the father of the Semitic peoples. And out of the Semitic peoples we get Abram. Abram is living in Ur, the Chaldees, which is present-day Baghdad, or close thereabouts. And he comes up uh, out of that line of Shem, and the Lord speaks to him and tells him to go to the Promised Land. He follows the Fertile Crescent, and he goes around, and he comes down into the Promised Land, and he dwells there, and he has uh, Isaac, and Isaac has Jacob. And Jacob is renamed Israel, and Israel has 12 sons. You'll remember that the 12 sons along with Israel go down into Egypt to uh, follow Joseph, who the Lord takes down there, and they fall into slavery as the tribes grow from these 12 sons into these 12 mighty tribes until there's hundreds of thousands of them. And finally, the Lord, with the strength of his arm, brings them out of slavery in Egypt by Moses. Moses leads them up out of the wilderness and uh, to the gate of the promised land, to the uh, fore of the Jordan River. But Moses doesn't cross over. It's one by the name of Jesus, or Joshua, or Jesus' name is Joshua, or they're both named Joshua, leads them over through the Jordan River into the Promised Land. So he who saves brings them over. They dwell finally in the Promised Land. The Lord teaches them how to live, and they are ruled by judges. You remember the greats like Samson and Deborah who rule as judges. And finally the people cry out. They want to be like everybody else. They want to be like the nations around them and they cry out for a king. And the Lord through the prophet Samuel anoints them a king. His name is Saul. 
and Saul rules with an iron fist, and he, like the people of this world, like the people that fall into sin and death, are afraid of what people think of him, and he's afraid of losing what it is that he has. Saul's fear, not in God, but in his name and how he appears to other people, and in losing what he has, falls into sin. He does not have the heart of God. And the Lord says, I will raise up for myself a king who does have my heart, who's not afraid of what people think of him, and he's only afraid of me. And so he tells Samuel again to go and anoint a king, and this time he goes to Jesse. And so it's out of Jesse's sons that he picks the king, and that king is David. So Jesse is David's father. And so out of Jesse, out of the tribe of Jesse, rises up David. And David is not afraid of what people think of him. He's not afraid of Goliath. He's not afraid of wild animals. He's not afraid of the Philistines. He fights boldly for God. He's only afraid of the Lord. He's not perfect, but he has a heart for God. And it's the promise made to David that his kingdom will not end and that it will be his uh, line that will continue forever is the one, the promise that Isaiah is reminding the people of that we will have this king to rule us out of the line of David because of the promises that were made to him. Now the people are thinking perhaps and maybe David too that this is going to be about military battles and about a great kingdom that has trade and that has ambassadors and that has great strong walls. But quickly after David, Solomon comes along and though he starts well, he ends badly. And Solomon, falling into sin, leaves a son who is a fool, Rehoboam. And Rehoboam's foolishness leads them to civil war. The nation of Israel in the north and the southern kingdom of Judah in the south. And so it's at this time of these divided kingdoms, Israel in the north, Judah in the south where Jerusalem is, that that Isaiah is prophesying. He's saying, here we are with these divided kingdoms. Here we are with these divided people. The people of God are not one. And we are all about to be taken captive because of our sin. He's warning Israel, we'll be taken captive first, very near Isaiah's own time. And then finally Judah will be taken captive as well. And it's in this time that the people most need hope. But the hope that he gives them out of the root of Jesse isn't again the hope of a strong wall or a mighty army. It's a strange kind of a hope, isn't it? It's this uh, wonderful um, Garden of Eden kind of a hope, isn't it? Where the animals reside together, where a young child is with wild animals and has no fear. The hope that Isaiah is giving them is a Garden of Eden hope. It's a recreated world hope. He's showing them that this Messiah is not going to be a battle leader. He's not going to raise a great army and lead them into battle. He's going to renew the face of the earth through the righteousness of God. And this is in whom we're going to have our hope. And all of Isaiah's promises uh, come true in the person of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. 700 years after the time of Isaiah, Christ perfectly fulfills all of these prophecies. He is that young child. He is the one that lays down in the garden. He is the one that descends from David. He rises up from the stump of Jesse. And he's the one that provides the people with the righteousness of God and with this hope that we are given as Christians. So St. Paul continues that theme of hope. He reminds us again that this hope has been given to us, and he talks about what it is that we need to do with this hope. So it's been given to us by the Messiah. He reminds us that Jesus is the fulfillment of that hope. But then he says, now that you've got it, kind of what do you do with it, right? He says that this hope that we're supposed to use is for one another. 
The, the hope that we have, we're supposed to encourage one another and bear with one another. That's an interesting phrase, isn't it? To bear with one another. Bear with doesn't mean ignore. Okay? So we're not supposed to ignore one another's faults or shortcomings or needs. We're supposed to identify them, just like we do with a small child. We don't ignore a small child when they act in a way that we don't want them to. We show them. We meet them where they're at, and we show them what the expectation is, and we teach them how to act accordingly, right? We don't expect them to be little mini-adults. We don't expect them to do everything right, just like we don't. But we know that our job is to meet them where they're at and to help them to learn these skills to walk in lives of righteousness. And this is what our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ did for us, right? As the Messiah. He doesn't stand on high and say, do this and do that. He becomes one of us. He lowers himself to become one of us. He takes on our flesh and he teaches us and gives us the Holy Spirit to have that skill that we need and the power that we need to live lives of righteousness. We're supposed to be doing that for each other. This is the model of the church. We don't come to church just to get what we need individually. We're here to encourage one another. We're here to build one another up. We're here to figure out where each one another is and to say, uh, the Lord has a, a great blessing for you. He has a desire for you to live in righteousness. And we're supposed to meet each other and bear one another's burdens, right? Not ignoring our sins or our shortcomings, but teaching and helping and encouraging one another to build up these lives. We do this through the Holy Scriptures. Uh, he tells us very clearly that it's through the Scriptures that we get this hope, right? Uh, we have this written instruction, he says, the, through the encouragement of the Scriptures. And, and this great colic that we have today, written by Archbishop Cranmer, about how it is that we're supposed to read Scripture. If you just look at that with me for a moment. So it's not just that we're familiar with Scripture. It's not just that we kind of recognize it. But we're supposed to have this life pattern of... Of, of studying the scriptures and doing more than that. Archbishop Cranmer writes in this collect of the day, he says, grant us to hear them. So we do that. We hear them read out loud, right? We hear them on Sundays. We're supposed to read them. So it's not just enough to hear them, but we also need to read them ourselves, right? So we hear them and then we read them. We're not just supposed to read them. We're supposed to mark them. Here's permission to write in your Bibles, Right? If you look at uh, Bishop John David's Bibles, they were underlined and there were things written in the margins and there's notes taken and all of that. And when he would get a Bible so marked up and so messed up, he'd put it on the shelf and he'd go buy a new one. That's the blessing of uh, the modern day, isn't it? That we can get them so inexpensively, right? Uh, so we're supposed to mark them. We're supposed to write them down. We're supposed to be studying them in that way. Uh, learning them. So we're supposed to come into an understanding of the scriptures through the fathers, through, through the teaching of the church. Not coming up with our own crazy notions about what the scriptures mean, but learning what the church has given to us. That, that truth of the fathers, of the, the whole uh, holy Catholic and apostolic church. All that knowledge of the scriptures that's been handed down to us. And then that we might inwardly digest them, that they become a part of us, part of the way that we see the world, that we understand, that we hear uh, what's given to us, that they all are filtered through Holy Scripture. And when we do that, when we do that, the hope that is within us from baptism is renewed and strengthened. So we read Holy Scripture to encourage one another, to encourage ourselves, to maintain the hope that was given to us. And again, we get that hope through baptism, which is what uh, St. John the Baptist is teaching us here. 
St. John the Baptist is the fulfillment of all of these prophets that have come before. He's the fulfillment of Isaiah, right? And he's telling us what it is that Christ is going to bring. And he shows, um, where does he pick? At the Jordan River, right? He picks the Jordan River. He picks that place where you'll remember Joshua takes the people from one side out of the wilderness of sin into the promised land. John the Baptist goes right to that place. Jesus himself goes again right to that place, not only to be baptized, but on his way into Jerusalem. The route that he takes is to go right back to that place of baptism and then go from there through Jericho, you'll remember, and right up into Jerusalem. So that pattern, that that path that was taken is followed by John the Baptist and then again by our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. He goes to those waters and he says, I'm going to give you the baptism of repentance. This is the first half of the baptism that we practice. You'll remember that our baptism has two parts. The first part is where we say, I reject sin, I reject Satan, I reject the ways of this world. I want to live with Christ. I want to be a part of his kingdom, to dwell with him by his help, by the power of his Holy Spirit. When we declare that, we're ready to be washed in repentance. Right? Repentance is saying, I have been going this way, I'm going to go this way. Right? That's all repentance is. I had been going in this way, the ways of the world, now I'm going to go in the ways of God. I've made a decision to go that way. That's what repentance is. And baptism is when we get washed from all that we had done before and we say, this is the path that we're now on. So John prepares them at the Jordan River to be washed through sin just like the nation of Israel was and to come in. And that repentance is so important because this is the the place where hope is finally given room in our lives. When we're going in the ways of the world, there's no hope. The world rejects hope, right? The world says there's no purpose, there's no meaning, there's a multiverse, there's no order to our lives. This is what the world teaches. Do what you want, grab what you can, when you can. Right? There's no hope in that. There's only death. The only place where we have hope is in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and the knowledge that God has purpose for each one of us, meaning for each one of us, and that we will dwell eternally with him if we follow that purpose, if we walk with him in his kingdom. So repentance makes room for hope. It says, I want to have hope in my life. I know that God has a plan for me and that he has a plan for the whole world, a plan for all of creation. And I want to give away that despair of the world and I want to make room in my life for hope and to go that direction. Then St. John the Baptist says, this isn't going to be enough, but Christ will come after me and he will baptize with fire. Now, this is the second part of baptism, right? Where we anoint with the Holy Spirit. We receive that fire of God. We receive the power of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. So now that we've said, this is the path that I want, the Holy Spirit gives us that hope and that joy, that faith, that love, all that we need to walk in his ways. All that power is given to us in baptism. This is the promise that John the Baptist gives us. This is the promise that Christ fulfills. Uh, This is what we have been given in baptism, is the power of the Holy Spirit and hope. Aren't these wonderful things to read? As I think about writing Christmas cards, I'm surprised nobody writes this stuff on a Christmas card, huh? I imagine you all will be getting Christmas cards this year, I hope. Do you think any of them are going to say, every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown to the fire? <laughs> will you get any that say that, do you think? 
I think we need to start a Christmas card company here at Jesus the Good Shepherd, don't you think? My children and I at Bible study are talking about starting a t-shirt company. Here's one for a t-shirt. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, and the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Wouldn't that make a great t-shirt? Huh? A great poster for the wall? That's the fear that we're supposed to have. We're supposed to have that fear of God. That's the only fear that King David had. It's the only fear that comes out of the root of Jesse is the fear of God and of his eternal righteousness. That if we don't walk in his ways, we will not bring glory to his name. He says that he is going to bring that wheat, that fruit into his barn. There's another one. We've been talking about gardens. We've been talking about mountains. We've been talking about cities. Here's another one. He says he's got a barn. And he's going to bring us into it. We're going to dwell in his barn. Isn't that great? What do you need a barn for? You need a barn to gather together what's good and to keep it safe. He's going to call us good and he's going to make us safe. We're going to be in the king's barn where it's dry, where it's safe, where we're protected, where he shows us how valuable we are. The armor of light protects us and the hope that we have in our hearts and our minds is that we too will produce the fruits of righteousness. The fruits of righteousness. And there's a short list that every once in a while we like to read just to remind ourselves about what this fruit is. St. Paul in Galatians gives us that list. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. Love, joy, Peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control.